Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes in life, timing is everything. Say, for example, you happen to be coming up for parole, and you know that next Monday a judge is going to hear your case. What time, if you could choose, would you like your case to be heard? 9 a.m., 11.45 a.m., or 4.30 p.m.? So the minute the judges get in, right before they go to lunch, or just before they head home. Turns out, it's not even a contest. At 9 a.m., you've got a real shot in front of the judge. If you get slotted in at 11.45 or 4.30, anything's possible, but your chances for parole just took a hit. How time affects all of us, prisoners, judges, everybody else. It's something that's not widely understood, but it has huge implications. Dan Pink has poured over the research on how time can both boost us and sabotage us. He's the author, most recently, of When, the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, welcome back to the show. Kara, it's great to be back with you. So let's start right there with the case of the judges. Why would you want your case heard at 9 a.m. versus like right before they break for lunch or, or later in the afternoon? Well, this is some remarkable research. It's out of Israel, as you say, of parole boards that shows that uh, the pattern looks basically like this. Uh, beginning of the day, judges are more likely to grant parole. As the day progresses, you have this steady slope downward in your chances of getting parole. But there's some good news there um, that after a judge has a break, his or her propensity to give parole goes way back up. Mm -hmm. And then it sinks again until he or she has another break. And then it goes way back up. So if you have any say in your parole hearing, do it early in the morning. So in your scenario there, Kara, it's, right. you're, you're still right. Not even a close call. Right. 9 a.m. Right. But also doing it immediately after the judge comes back from her break, that would be advantageous too. Do you have a sense of what the drop-off is like, let's say, between 9 a.m. and then 11.45, like right before lunchtime? Well, in this particular study, it, the, the difference was dramatic. You, went, you go from about a 60% chance of getting parole to less than 10%. Hmm. See, I mean, that, and that's pretty amazing when yes, you think about it, it. And then if you go after the judge comes back from her break, you're back up to close to 70. Huh. So if you just through the random assignment of your parole hearing, go before a judge right before her break and you're likely to stay in prison or continue wearing an ankle monitor. Right. If you happen to go immediately after her break, you're likely to go free. And so here you have a question of something pretty fundamental here, mm -hmm. you know, human liberty. Right, right, right. The state taking away human liberty. And we like to think that judges are making these rational decisions. And I know that they believe that. Mm -hmm. But these temporal aspects have a big role in judicial decision-making, uh, education performance, health care, and our own mood and well-being. And, and that, to me, is sad, right? Because you want to believe that you've got all these prisoners, that they're all given a fair shot. And what you're saying is it's not even close to that, like not even close. And, and the lack of equality does not come from anything they did. It's just sort of pure, haphazard, random chance. And I mean, it's hard to think about uh, something like that when you think about the justice system or you know, we'll get into it, um, you know, health care. Uh, these are just hard things to grapple with. They they really are, and in this particular case, they ought to these these particular things they ought to alarm us. I mean, there's other experimental evidence showing that um, a really interesting study where they give potential jurors a defendant, and in one case he's called some of the jurors he's called uh, Roberto Garcia, and other cases he's called Robert Garner. And when juries deliberate in the morning, they treat these two defendants on the same set of facts equally. 
exactly the same. But in afternoon deliberations, they're more likely to exonerate the guy named Garner and convict the guy named Garcia. That is, in the afternoon, there's a propensity to resort to more racial stereotypes, Mm. even in the criminal justice system. Mm. So this is very alarming. What first got you interested in this question of timing and the impact that, you know, the way that we time things, the impact that can have on our lives? Uh, Well, I realized I was making all kinds of when decisions myself in my own life, you know, mundane things like, okay, when in the day should I work out? Should I work out in the morning or in the in the evening? Mm -hmm. Uh, When should I begin a project? When should I abandon a project that Mm -hmm. isn't working? And I was making these decisions in a really haphazard way. So I started looking around for some guidance. And what I realized is that there is a massive amount of research out there on timing. It ends up, though, being splattered across (laughs) dozens of different disciplines, you know, Mm -hmm. not only economics and social psychology, but endocrinology, anesthesiology. There's a whole field of chronobiology. Uh, There's interesting research even in in cognitive science and anthropology. Hmm. And across these fields, these scholars are looking systematically at these questions of timing and when we should do stuff, not only within a day, but in the course of a project, in the Mm -hmm. course of a lifetime, any sort of span of time. One thing that seems to unite a lot of these findings, and we we touched on it with the judges, is that people have troughs during the day where they're not as productive or they do stuff but it's not very good or their judgment's kind of off. And you kind of see one in the morning and you kind of see one in the afternoon. That's When I looked at that, and and you see it across all these different professions and fields, I mean, that scared me a little bit because it made me think, gee, you know, if I'm in a meeting at two o'clock, am I making a dumber decision than I would at 10 in the morning? I I just tell me a little bit about what you found in terms of like those troughs during the day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying, Carrie, is the first line of defense, (laughs) that simply being aware of this is one of the most important things that we can do. And and this is actually, to me, the, the meta takeaway of a lot of this research, which is that we end up being very intentional in our lives about what we do. We are very intentional about who we do it with, how we do it. But this question of when we do things, we don't take that seriously. We, we think of it as a, you know, a, a less important question, and it's right. not. It's a materially right. important question. Now, on the trough, um, what you're better off doing is where you can – Uh, If it's a very important meeting that requires analytic, heads-down kind of work, Mm -hmm. in general, if you have a workplace without many night owls, do that kind of work, that kind of meeting in the morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're doing a more brainstorming session, it's better to do it a little bit later in the day when people's mood is a little higher than during the trough, but they're less inhibited than during the morning. Do the brainstorming meeting uh, kind of then. But if you can't rearrange your schedule, awareness is extremely important as a way to protect against it, Mm. as are even short breaks. And when we talk about breaks, we're not talking about, oh, kick out for, you know, three hours and have a giant meal and a a sleep. We're talking about taking 10 minutes to walk around the block. Um, You know, there's all different professions, obviously, um, and everybody has these peaks and troughs and stuff. But I'll tell you one profession, in addition to judges, uh, that stopped me in my tracks when I read about it in terms of their peaks and troughs. Um, Duke University Medical Center tracked what they called anesthetic adverse events. Um, And those are essentially just things that go wrong with anesthesia, um, which is administered for a surgical procedure. So things that go wrong. At 9 a.m., the chance that you're going to have an adverse event with your anesthesia is 1%. 
by 4 p.m., it's over 4%. So the number has more than quadrupled by 4 p.m. That, I think, would give anybody pause about ever scheduling an afternoon surgical procedure. And I think that's very appropriate because <laughs> I sure as heck wouldn't. Too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, looking at some of this research on the effects of medical professional performance in the afternoons, mm-hmm. I would not let anybody in my family go into an important doctor's appointment or go in for elective surgery in the afternoon, mm-hmm. period, full stop. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the medical profession has done a good job of trying to mitigate some of that. And okay. once again, it's things like breaks and timeouts. So you look at something like the incidence of hand washing inside of hospitals, big deterioration later in the day. Hmm. Uh, but a way to mitigate that is give nurses more breaks and actually social breaks that can bring that back up. And do you think that the medical profession has grappled with this in a widespread way, that they understand sort of, you know, ironically, the biology of what happens to us during the day and that we're not always at the top of our game. I think so. I think they've actually done, uh, in some ways, a a pretty good job, slowly, but a pretty good job on a number of different fronts. So one of the things that... uh, you see, and, and, I, and I write about this where I go to the University of Michigan Medical Center to look at some surgeries, things like timeouts, where at the beginning of a surgery, literally, they, they stop, they pause, they literally take a step back hmm. and say, what are we doing here? You know, this is bringing in the very important principle of checklists, mm-hmm. um, making sure that everyone is, is tuned in, just being a little bit more intentional about that. The medical profession has done a great job with another timing issue, which is something that was known has been known for a long time as the so-called July effect, Hmm. where uh, young physicians would start their medical careers as physicians, you know, after medical school in July and in teaching hospitals. And not surprisingly, a lot of stuff went wrong. Right. You can see why you wouldn't want your surgery scheduled for August. Uh, no, you would not. <laughs> and, and, you know, beca- because you have people who are 10 minutes out of medical school coming yeah, and, you know, right. taking out your whatever. <laughs> right, and and right. there were all these deleterious effects of that. And it was known as the July effect. Hmm. Uh, in, in fact, in the U.K., where the process is one month later, you get out of medical school in July, start your residency in August. It was known, no joke, as the August killing season. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, it's terrible. But the medical profession has done a great job of this. What they said is, OK, this is a big problem. We've looked at the data. We can do a lot better at this in teaching hospitals. Mm. And one of the things that they've done is that they say, we're not going to let these doctors start alone. We're going to put them as part of a team. Uh, we're going to surround them with seasoned people. And we're going we're gonna to get them off to a better beginning of their physician careers than just throwing them in at the outset and having these negative consequences for patients. So that's one area where I think they've done a spectacular job of dealing with some of these time-based effects that were harming patients. You talked about how the motivation for writing this book in some ways is that you had to make all these decisions. When do I exercise? When do I write? Whatever. Um, And you didn't really know the answer definitively. Um, How has your life changed because of the research you've done? And what's your life like uh, on a day-to-day schedule basis? Okay. Well, I mean, I was inching in this direction myself. So when I write, as a you know, as a writer, I basically follow the the pattern. I do my analytic work, the heads down writing, and, and you know, writing. We like to think of writing as oh, it's got to be really creative. But in fact, you know, the main thing is you got to put words on paper. You got to get stuff done, right? Uh, and you got to eliminate distractions. And so I do my writing in the morning during, which is you know, I'm I'm a kind of a mild lark. So I'll do my writing in the morning, and I'll try to 
uh, close off everything else. I won't do meetings. I won't do phone calls. Uh, I'll turn off my email, get my writing done in the morning. During the trough, whew, I mean, I take a lunch break. During the trough, I, tr- you know, I, I answer email. <laughs> Would you say the trough is like what one to three? This it varies from person yeah. to person, okay. but it's you know you know you know early to mid afternoon, okay. and depending on you know, there's no sort of bell that goes off and says mm-hmm. it's trough time, everyone. Um, yeah. And then in the late afternoon and early evening, what I do is I, I like to do for my research, you know, in, you know, interviews, and I, I like to do my interviews during that period, hmm. in part because I like to do interviews where. I'm not an investigative reporter, so I'm not trying to trap anybody. You know, I just want, hey, let's talk about this. What do you think? What about that? What about that? And that recovery period is when, you know, our mood goes back up, but we're less inhibited. So you have you can have kind of a looser, creative uh, approach to things. So I have reconfigured my own life in that way. The other thing, I think the most important thing that I do is is I make a, a list of breaks. I Every afternoon, I write, or every morning when I come in, I write down two breaks that I'm going to take in that afternoon and what I'm going to do. So I'll say one thirty, walk, you know, uh, 3.45, um, drop something at the post office. I, mm-hmm. There's a post office that's about a uh, an eight minute walk from my uh, my office, so mm-hmm. I can get a 15 minute break by mm-hmm. bringing something to the post office. I leave my phone away. I actually don't uh, even I don't listen to podcasts or anything when I do it. I just take that break, fully detach, go outside, have that walk. And the key is to be intentional about it. The key Mm -hmm. is to be aware of these temporal effects on our life and to be as intentional about questions of when as we are about questions of what, who, and how. I think one of the most uh, humbling aspects of this research on time is that it doesn't just relate to what happens to you during the day, like, you know, you're making good decisions at this time of day, not as good as decisions at this time of day, but that it actually extends to a lifespan. You can think of a life like a day, too. And, you know, one of those things is, for example, if you graduated during recession, something you have no control over, it could have a huge effect on your future. Do you want do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is remarkable research from Lisa Kahn at Yale. She's an economist there. And what she looked at exactly as you're saying, Kara, is that you take two people similarly situated who graduate from college. One graduates in a boom time. One graduates in a recession. And now it makes sense that the person who's graduating in a boom time would, um, you know, have an easier time finding a job, maybe start at a higher salary. What's remarkable about that is that that shows up in people's wages 20 years later. Wow. I mean, that's kind of incredible. And And as you say, it's manifestly manifestly unfair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's manifestly unfair because they had no control over that. But one of the things, you know, we realize about, you know, beginnings have a a distinct effect on our behavior and our performance. And the long-term effects of a bad beginning, I mean, beginnings can linger with us to the end. Right. And endings do, too. I was fascinated to um, see that people who run marathons are disproportionately... Uh, likely to be 29, 39, 49, uh, because they're ending, I guess, the they're nearing the end of that decade. And I guess they say to themselves, before I turn 30 or before I turn 40 or 50, I want to do this thing. Uh, endings have that. You're talking about some really fascinating research from Adam Alter at NYU, Hal Hirschfield at UCLA that show that effect. Even something as arbitrary as the end of a life decade, which has actually no physiological meaning whatsoever. 
you have uh, 49-year-olds three times more likely to run a first marathon than 50-year-olds. Uh, and what it shows is <laughs> right, that the, right. the effects of endings, endings can right. help us energize. And endings right. have, of any kind, uh, have, a, a very, have a profound effect on our, on, on our behavior, on our perception, uh, even on our well-being. Yeah. Um, I think maybe my favorite piece of uh, research about this, uh, about beginnings and endings, was about Hanukkah. Do you want to talk about that? Ha! Ha! <laughs> the, um, sure. Well, I mean, it's what's interesting about this is that is that this is, has to do with you, you can. There's something going on. I, I don't think we know exactly what. So if you look at uh, well-being over, you mentioned lifespan before. If you look at people's well-being over the lifespan, you know how happy are they over their over the course of their life? What you see is you see a U-shaped curve mm-hmm. where people are reasonably happy in the 20s and 30s. In the 40s, they it begins to dip. In the or especially early 50s. It reaches its exact rock bottom and then begins to tick back up again. This is somewhat alarming to me. The low point for American in well-being for American males is 52.9 years, mm. and I happen to be 53. <laughs> so you're talking to me at my bottom, Kara. Um, oh, okay. So, but you have this thing, and what's interesting about this it is can that only that get you, better from here. Is the good thing? That's a nice way of seeing it. So the glass is half full, Dan. You also see this pattern, believe it or not, in great apes. When you look at when you have caregivers evaluate how they're doing. Apes have that midlife slump, but there's something about the mid. There's they something have a about midlife the midlife crisis. That's funny. It's the, yeah, that's, there's something about the middle that sometimes brings us down. That that makes us slump a little bit. And you see this some wonderful research from uh, Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago. Uh, Hanukkah is an eight-day holiday. Uh, <laughs> Jews who celebrate Hanukkah light candles for each night. One night on one candle on night one, two candles on night two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So right. each night they light a candle. Or do they? Um, (laughs) When she actually looked at people's behavior, she found great levels of candle lighting on night one, great levels on night eight. In the middle, eh, kind of a droop. It was also that kind of (laughs) U-shaped curve. And you see this in other experimental research as well. There's something at times that hitting the midpoint of something just, it causes us to slump. Now, there are other times that midpoint gives us a spark, but uh, in, in many cases, that midpoint gives us a slump. That means there's just miscellaneous Hanukkah candles in drawers all over the place because you buy them in a complete set. So there's a lot extra out there. Actually, that was the impetus for figuring this out, the mystery of the lights. Why, if you have the exact number of candles you need to light uh, the Hanukkah candles, why does everybody end up with, (laughs) with candles in the box? This is a Talmudic mystery that needed solving. Daniel Pink is author, most recently, of the book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. On our website, Dan Pink takes three minutes to answer some big questions. When should you ask for a raise? When should you ask someone to marry you? When's the best time to take a nap? When should you start a project? When should you take a shower? And when should you exercise? Here's a little bit of his answer on that one. You should exercise in the morning if you want to lose weight, if you want to have a mood boost throughout the day, if you want to establish a routine. Uh, You're better off exercising in the afternoon, though, if you want to avoid injury because we're literally warmer at that point of the day. Mm. We've fully warmed up. Uh, If you want to actually enjoy the workout a little bit more, because you're warmer, you actually find it less effortful. 
Uh, and then also, this is really intriguing, if you want to perform at a higher level. We've got Pink's answers to all of our questions on our website, innovationhub.org. And now, as we sometimes do, we're going to take a quick dip into history for the story of a man whose success in life was all about saving you time. Not a lot of time, just a few seconds, maybe a minute here and there. But because of that, the product he created won over not only America, but the world. King Camp, and we will get to his last name in a minute, was born in Wisconsin in the middle of the 1800s. His mother was a successful cookbook author, and King became a traveling salesman with a tendency to improve the products that he was selling, and sometimes patent that improvement. But he didn't have a lot of success to show for his inventiveness, and he became fixated on a utopian dream, a dream he wrote an entire book about. The dream was that Americans would all move to Niagara Falls and set up a socialist utopia there, powered by the falls. And their homes, he got very specific here, would be round and porcelain. In this community, money would be eliminated, labor would be divided, and genders would be equal. The capitalist system, King Camp wrote in 1894, was broken and unjust. And it may have been, but its rewards were about to benefit him tremendously. The next year, 1895, King set out to improve yet another product. He was frustrated by the time it took him to keep his razor blade in good shape. And after sharpening the blade over and over, eventually got too dull to use anyway. Now, one thing he had learned from working as a salesman is that if you create a product that's disposable, so people have to keep buying more and more of it, you can make a ton of money. So King Camp, whose last name, by the way, was Gillette, visited MIT to see if you could create that sort of a disposable razor blade out of thin metal. The experts took a look. Won't work, they said. Finally, Gillette found a man who had actually gone to MIT who believed that he could create that sort of blade. And he did. Gillette's disposable razor, with a handle that you kept and a blade that you threw away, it sold slowly at first, 168 blades in 1901. But two years later, millions of blades were being sold. Gillette became rich. And when soldiers began using the blades during the First World War, he became that much richer. He also became incredibly famous because his face was on the wrapping of his product. He had a beautiful house designed for him in Southern California, a house that was later bought by the comedian Bob Hope. But the socialist, whom capitalism had rewarded so richly because he promised to save men everywhere, just a few minutes of blade sharpening, he ultimately cursed capitalism again when the stock market crashed in 1929. When he died in Los Angeles during the Great Depression, King Camp Gillette had almost nothing left. Gillette, the company, though, went full steam ahead. It now sells nearly $7 billion of merchandise a year. And what became of the mansion that Gillette had built in California only a few years before he lost almost everything in the stock market? It's still used. In recent years, it's been the filming location for the reality TV show, The Biggest Loser.
from PRI and WGBH Radio. I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Get together a bunch of 60-year-olds. It might actually work with 30- or 40-year-olds, too. And ask them how many kids they knew when they were growing up who had allergies. And you're likely to see a bunch of blank stares. But get some five-year-olds together in a room and ask them how many kids they know with food allergies. And chances are you're going to hear how this kid can't eat peanuts and this other kid can't drink milk and this other kid can't eat fish. Estimates are that peanut allergies have tripled amongst kids in the last few decades. And doctors, of course, have marveled at this shift. I would say it's been fairly dramatic, and I think the consensus is there to support that statement, although we certainly could use even better data to really drill down on it. That said, good estimates of food allergy prevalence you know, have shown pretty dramatic rises over the last few decades to the point where now, you know, in the U.S., you're talking about you know, something like one in every 20 to one in every 12. That's Dr. Wayne Schreffler, director of the Food Allergy Center at Massachusetts General Hospital and one of the country's leading researchers on food allergies. Well, about a dozen years ago, facing this worldwide spike in allergies, particularly in the developed world, a team of researchers decided to figure out what was going on. In a landmark study, the LEAP study, they compared Jewish children in the UK to Jewish children in Israel, kids who they reasoned were part of the same relatively small diaspora, and they'd have similar genetic proclivities. What they found shocked them. The kids in the UK were 10 times as likely to have a peanut allergy. And when researchers looked for a reason why, they found one in the snack aisle. There's this very popular puff uh, called bomba that is uh, largely peanut flour based and not widely consumed uh, in the UK. And so even in kids with the same genetic background, there's this striking, you know, discrepancy. And yet in Israel, you know, very allergic population, incomparable in a lot of ways, high rates of even other food allergies, just this sort of striking difference in peanut allergy Mm. that emerged in that observation. Schreffler notes that the next thing that the researchers did was very smart. They couldn't be sure that eating this popular peanut snack was helping Israeli kids. Maybe there was something else about living in Israel that made the difference. So they turned the LEAP study into a trial that had some kids consume peanut-based food starting when they were just a few months old, and other kids avoid food with peanuts. At five years old, 3% of the kids who ate peanutty snacks had an allergy to peanuts. So 3% for the kids who ate peanuts. Of the kids who avoided peanuts, 17% were allergic to peanuts by age five. So you were five times more likely to be allergic to peanuts if you didn't eat them. The results were a wake-up call, says another top allergy researcher, Dr. Katie Allen, the director of population health at Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. If you delay the introduction of peanut beyond the first year of life, you significantly increase your risk of peanut allergy. And all across the world, guidelines about how parents should feed their kids started to change. But the fight to reverse the surge in allergies continues. And the quest goes on to figure out how this went from a minor, almost unheard of issue a generation ago to what Alan has called the new epidemic of allergic disease. We never really measured it 30 or 40 years ago. 
because it wasn't around, like you don't measure nothing, um, and we know it's around now. And the estimates of 5% are bang on. We've just measured them here in Australia in the 10 to 14-year-old age group, and it's 5% here in Australia. We measured a very high rate at the age of one of 10%, and that's been regarded as quite staggering worldwide. No one thought it would be that high. But we think, unfortunately, Australia has an extra problem than everybody else. We're extra specially bad with food allergy, and we're not quite sure why that is, although we have theories about that. But the estimate of 5% or 1 in 20 over the first uh, 18 years of life is pretty consistent in the developed countries, not in developing countries. Hmm. So you pose the kind of next really important question yourself, which is, okay, so why? So you do want to talk about some of the reasons that you think cases of allergies might be surging. Well, I think the first thing to comment on is that food allergy is possibly a sort of second wave epidemic. And that is because asthma and eczema and hay fever um, rose in the in the 90s and, and around the turn of the century. And we seem to be able to pinpoint the rise in food allergy to be lagging behind that. Now, yeah. we don't know why that is exactly, but it does seem food allergy is a sort of new kid on the block. And it seems to be somewhere, uh, you know, 10, 20 years later, it seems to be a slight lagging of the situation. Mm-hmm. The question why, I mean, the, the short answer is we don't exactly know why. We have a lot of theories and I always call them the five Ds because I can't tell you how many times I've tried to explain to people the various and many reasons. And in fact, everybody in the world seems to have their own theory. I keep saying to people, because we all need to eat, we're all fascinated by how can something as innocuous as a peanut potentially and in fact actually kill somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, But we had an interesting natural history experiment where we looked at... um, Children in Melbourne with an Asian background had two to three times more challenge-proven food allergy or parent-reported nut allergy in three different studies that we've looked at. And so we looked at another study where we looked at children who were born in Asia and then came to Australia in their first four years of life and they were actually protected from food allergy. So that suggests something to do with the developed world environment, and that's what we're all, I think, honing in on at the moment. Wow. Okay. And have you been able to follow that and try to figure out, like, why is that? What were these kids doing in Asia that was protecting them from developing this nut allergy? Well, the first thing we'd say is that we have found that Asian, children of Asian extraction who um, who live in Australia have a lot more food allergy. We know that from many different studies now. So we've had this theory that we call the 5D theory um, and includes sort of three hypotheses. The first one um, is what a lot of people talk about, the hygiene hypothesis, we're too clean is what the public would say. Um, we found in a number of our studies, and it's been replicated in a number of other large population-based studies, that having a sibling is protective. And we also found having dogs inside the house is protective. Now, you can't recommend that as a public health initiative, Uh, have dogs and kids, but um, there's something about that shared microbiome. Probably don't want to think too closely about what sharing with the dogs is, but it it sort of of speaks to this something about shared um, infection or shared microbiome or even shared parasites. We don't exactly know. Mm -hmm. The second area of interest is actually the one that's most scientifically valid at the moment. So, So the first 
two of the five Ds are um, what I call dogs and dribble, just to put give it the D acronym. Uh, <laughs> the second one is diet and dry skin. And that's that children with eczema, particularly early onset eczema, so eczema that occurs in the first few months of life, are far more likely to have food allergy. That's really very strongly associated. And so we think it's to do with the skin barrier not being good enough and the system sort of uh, sensitises the children to being allergic. And then if they don't actually eat it at the right time, so the diet is not right, then the immune system's not trained to uh, tolerate the food. So that's the sort of called the dual allergen exposure hypothesis. So you sensitise through the skin and if you delay introducing it in your diet, then you in- that's sort of a, a perfect storm for an increased risk. So now all the guidelines around the world, in Australia, in the US, in Europe, now all say um, introduce solids such as peanut, in peanut paste in the, in the case of infants, in the first year of life. We know that that's a definite recommendation. So that's the sort of four Ds. The fifth D is our special D here down in in Australia, down under. Um, We are the only country in the world that doesn't supplement or fortify the food chain supply with vitamin D. So we have a very high rate of vitamin D deficiency and we worry that vitamin D might be the reason we've got the extra blip down here. Okay. Wayne, when you hear that sort of array of different possible reasons that allergies have surged... Do you hear one or two reasons that jump out to you and you think, like, to you, these are the most promising possibilities? Yeah. Well, I think it's likely to be, you know, more than one answer, right? And I I think as sort of Katie laid it out, we see sort of this lag effect in food allergy. But we've been witnessing sort of this increase in immune-related disease that's correlated with something about modern lifestyle or or, or specifically the Western type, asthma, hay fever, et cetera, you know, that have been going up really since, you know, the turn of the 20th century um, and um, and then increases in food allergy more recently. And it's not even just allergic disease. So the epidemiology of other immune-related diseases, um, say something like Crohn's disease or type 1 diabetes, um, you know, shares some similarities, striking similarities that I think might be an important hint to the importance of something like, say, the hygiene hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. So the dogs and dribble, was it, Katie? <laughs> the the other thing, though, that, you know, I think the LEAP study has taught us about this was sort of uh, allergists deserve some of the blame because, you know, when I came out of training, for example, um, you know, the recommendations were avoid, you know, these uh, foods that are most strongly or frequently associated with allergy. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Dr. Wayne Treffler, the director of the Food Allergy Center at Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Katie Allen, the director of population health at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, So I want to ask both of you, um, and Wayne, I'm going to start with you on this. How do we stand in terms of being able to treat allergies? Like, I know you're working on stuff. I know Katie has been working on stuff. What looks promising and what may end up being the thing that helps people deal with their allergies or maybe even helps prevent them in the first place? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And those two categories actually are the place to start, right? Because that's a super important difference that often gets conflated a little bit Mm -hmm. in people's minds. This question of, you know, prevention or maybe prevention in a high risk setting, um, maybe when there's a positive test there, but there's not known to be an established allergy versus treating someone who definitely has a known uh, allergy. And uh, I think it's important to keep those separate in people's minds for discussion, even though superficially it can look like some of the things that we do are very similar, namely 
you know, there's a lot of interest on the treatment side in um, introducing the food in a gradual manner, um, something often called oral desensitization or oral immunotherapy. Is this for somebody who already And this is for someone with established allergy. allergy. Okay. It's still, um, you know, largely in the research Okay, so giving venue. them a little bit of the thing right. that they are allergic to. Exactly. Okay. And increasing that gradually over time such that you increase the person's let's call it tolerance, clinical tolerance, immunologists will get sort of worked up about how you use that word carefully, mm-hmm. um, to the food. Okay. And this is something that, in fact, you know, a company has in a phase three clinical trial right now uh, for peanut allergy. And I think it will be helpful for people. And the evidence is that you can make people less sensitive. There are some important pitfalls to it. One is that that state of increased tolerance um, for many people is quite transient and tenuous, and so they really have to keep up with regular Mm. exposure for quite a long time, perhaps indefinitely for some. And the other is that uh, for many people, they experience, you know, some what we'll call in a clinical trial adverse events, you know, some symptoms related to the treatment, including occasionally some pretty significant reactions. So So I assume if there's a drug company that's pretty far along with this, Mm -hmm. that they've seen some good results, that people with allergies have been exposed to the food that they're allergic to, and it's looking pretty good. It's gotten through phase two. Okay. Um, I, you know, and it's in phase three now, and it's okay. it's it's likely to get approval. This is, you know, a study um, being conducted in multiple countries uh, throughout the world, multiple countries in Europe, Australia, the U.S., Canada. The other thing that's in phase three, just to, in terms of things that are closest to the clinic, is you know a, a patch that one wears on the skin uh, every day um, that has peanut allergen on it and exposes the immune system in that manner. Um, and that also got through phase two and is currently in phase three. So instead of like a nicotine patch, that's right. you're wearing a peanut patch. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't um, help with smoking, though. It's very, uh, specific, <laughs> very specific to your problem. To yeah. your problem. Okay, so Katie, if you had to make your best guess as to like when we might see either a cure or a major reduction in people living with food allergies – I just wonder, are we looking five years out here? Are we looking 10 years out, 20 years out? Just give me a sense of of what this seems like to you. So the first thing is prevention and the second thing is cure. I mean, I think with prevention, um, we've actually, we looked at health nuts 10 years ago when we looked at 5,300 children. We found one in 10 had food allergy at the age of 12 months. We're now repeating that study 10 years later. It's called early nuts. And we hope to see a reduction because if optimal introduction of peanut is going to prevent peanut allergy, mm-hmm. we should see that here in Melbourne. Because when we did health nuts 10 years ago, 80% of people were not introducing peanut in the first 12 months of life. We've now got preliminary data from the early nuts trial, 90% are. Okay. So you think in the next few years we're going to get a lot of answers? For prevention, yes. Yes. And and I'm hopeful there might be something in the next few years for cure. I mean, they're very promising studies Mm -hmm. and it's an extremely exciting place to be. Because as a researcher, what sort of condition would you work on that wasn't around 30 to 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. You know, we have on one side people saying, oh, it's overdiagnosed. And on the other side people say, well, you didn't see it 30 to 40 years ago. You must have been underdiagnosing it. Mm -hmm. No one believes that one. Because when a patient turns up and they describe their child had their first bite of a peanut butter sandwich and their face swelled up, their eyes swelled up, they start to cough and the parents aren't making that up. It's, mm-hmm. And they say, we think they're allergic to peanut, doctor. And you go, yep, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And when... We're geniuses, right, Katie? <laughs> we are. Yeah, what do you see? Well, I'm a little more – I think the prevention side is um, moving along really well. I think there's a lot of exciting data in the pipeline. Okay. And I couldn't agree with Katie more strongly that we really have to have 
you know, the data to inform the guidelines. And then we have to do a better job, I think, at pushing those guidelines out in kind of a clearly understood, you know, manner. On the treatment side, it is a really exciting time in immunology research. Um, I would say that there are very few examples in medical history of really transforming a disease that is chronic in the way that food allergy is. Food allergy is a funny disease, right? Because if people are avoiding their allergen, they're perfectly fine. And yet the burden uh, on the quality of life is significant mm-hmm. for people because they, you know, they worry about their kids um, and and food is so social and so it intersects with sort of all aspects of life. But I just, you know, feel compelled to make a plug for the importance of sort of the basic immunology research that uh, I think is so necessary for you know, broadening our understanding of mechanisms um, so that we'll kind of have more biological targets to um, focus on for those kids that we can't prevent. Hmm. I mean, just to sound very geeky, I mean, I often say this, you know, there's so many conditions as medical researchers that we're trying to stem or to deal with, um, you know, Alzheimer's, cancer, um, infectious diseases. Right. Um, and you sort of say, well, they've been around for eons, you know, they've been around as long as man. But what condition, you know, other than some of the really new infectious conditions such as HIV, but what other conditions have occurred in our lifetime that weren't there mm-hmm. before? So we know allergic disease, particularly food allergy, wasn't around in any great, um, you know, number 30 to 40 years ago. It's probably more like 25 years ago, in which case something has happened, right. something in the very, very proximal period of time. And if that, if we can identify what that mm-hmm. one or many things are, wow, how right. fantastic that, you know, we could turn it, turn back the tide. And I, I think that's that palpable sense we have of there's an aha moment. And if we can use the evidence base, not just a guess, but an evidence base, well, then science is doing its mm-hmm. job. Katie Allen is the Director of Population Health at Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. And Wayne Treffler is the Director of the Food Allergy Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thanks so much to you both. Great. Thanks, Kara. Thanks, Kara. Warning, some people have allergies to peanut butter. Make sure you check before you share. There's a food going round that's a sticky, sticky goo. By the way, if you're wondering what the most common food allergies in the U.S. are, here are the top seven according to the Food and Drug Administration. Milk, eggs, fish, crustaceans, tree nuts, like almonds and walnuts, peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. We've got more about the Breakthrough Leap study looking at peanut allergies on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And you can let us know about your experiences with allergies and prevention and treatment. If you live in a city, chances are you've seen a rat. And if you're anything at all like me, you probably didn't like it. Because honestly, who likes rats? Oh my goodness, if we had to say thank you to any other mammal on planet Earth, we would owe more thanks to the rats and the mice because we've learned so much about ourselves in medical research. That is rat expert Bobby Corrigan. And as you can tell, he's a big fan of rats. Now, we have been neighbors with rats for thousands of years, but that still does not make most of us like them. So how do we minimize rats' presence in our lives? You got poison, you got traps, but a new report suggests it may not make sense to kill rats at all. Innovation Hub associate producer Mark Filipino has the story. 
I'm at a train stop on Chicago's south side when I meet Irma Jones. She lives close by, and I ask her, have you seen any rats lately? Every day. (laughs) Well, at least every day that she takes out the trash. And while Irma can laugh about it, she admits it can get a little grimy. I got the, uh, the rat poison there in different corners of the house. It works. But the idea of them coming in the house and they dying in the house, you have to go and search for them now, so. For the last few years, Chicago's held the title of America's rattiest city, according to Orkin, the National Pest Control Service. But it's not like Chicago hasn't tried to take care of its rat problem. They have, mostly with poison. And actually, we don't like to call it poison. It's called rodenticide. That's Josie Cruz. She heads the city's rat control efforts. And so we lay the rodenticide, they'll eat it, and we'll get rid of the rats. You know, they'll die off. They've also gotten creative. At one point, they used dry ice to suffocate rats out of their nest. But at the end of the day, it's all lethal. Bobby Corrigan's a rodent control expert, and he says, sure, we can keep poisoning rats, but... It's a band-aid. It uh, works short-term, but with rats, they have a very fast reproduction rate. So the bait is this short-term Band-Aid on something that really, you know, needs surgery. How much surgery? Let's put it this way. One single rat couple can produce between kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, up to 15,000 descendants a year. And then there's the debate over what form that surgery should take. Because straight-up killing rodents might be doing more harm than good. We're not saying that pest control is ineffective, but we're saying we need to reconsider what pest control looks like. That's Kelly Byers. She's a doctoral candidate and part of a research organization called the Vancouver Rat Project. And she asks, should we be killing rats at all? Just hear me out here. Recently, Byers and the Vancouver Rat Project tagged some of Vancouver's neighborhood rodents and recaptured them eight months later. They found something striking. Pest control practices, like poison, could increase the chances of disease spreading from one rat to another. And the general idea here is that carriage of disease and pathogens by rats is intimately linked to their ecology. So by doing things that change that ecology or change those behaviors, we could have unforeseen impacts on disease spread among rats. Picture it this way. A city gets a call saying there's a rat infestation in a nearby alley. And these are disease-carrying rats. The city puts down some poison, but maybe only half the population dies. But this disruption causes the surviving diseased rats to move to a place they think is safer, a nearby city block where healthy rats live. The diseased rats mingle with healthy rats, and boom, you've got more diseased rats, which could end up infecting people. There's no button that makes the rats go away. Unfortunately, that button is us going with them. Realistically, Byers says to get rid of rats without killing them, we'd have to clean up our act. Literally. You see, rats feast on the stuff we hate to think about, like garbage and pet waste. Plus, rats don't need a lot of food to sustain themselves. Maybe a few grams a day. And when we try to kill them, it spreads disease. But what if we made sure they were never even born? Birth control. That's it. That's the key word. That's right. Josie Cruz, head of Chicago Rodent Control, is excited about a rat birth control pilot program. The birth control comes in liquid food form and speeds up the egg cycle of female rats so they reach menopause quicker. 
and it turns males infertile. Then, without producing any offspring, they die of natural causes. This may be the rat control program that works best. But this brings up a major question for all cities, not just Chicago. Are we as citizens willing to commit to long-term family planning? The idea is a tough sell, because even though poison is a short-term fix, it's convenient. And it's comfortable. So, to move forward on the birth control idea, cities would have to convince their residents to take the road less traveled. New York City took that road. It saw success in 2015 as rats gobbled up the birth control-laced food in subway stations. And New York just started it up again last year. For Innovation Hub, I'm Mark Filipino. Oh, I think I smell a rat. Oh, I think I smell a rat. By the way, cities handle their rat problems in some interesting ways. Washington, D.C. recruits feral cats to track down rodents, and some New Yorkers actually go out on rat hunts. We've got articles about some of the less conventional rat control methods on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Songer and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International.